We've been in this series called The Imitation of Christ recently, and uh, we've been talking about imitating Jesus. And last week I started with uh, a question that I probably should have started with the week before, but I started with this question of why is Jesus worthy of our imitation at all? And we had a few minutes to discuss that. I wanted to actually do that again this morning, okay? So here at the Asheville Church, we invite participation and not just spectatorship. So dialogue with me for a moment, just from your seat. Why is Jesus worthy of your imitation personally? Because he's awesome. Would you like to elaborate a little bit more? Like what? All of the things that you're not, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so you wish you were better at comebacks. I will cut you. All right. What else? What else? Why is Jesus personally worthy of your imitation? So his, his love and his sacrifice, being willing to partake in this human existence with us, yeah? Yes, sir? So he, he's the author and the perfecter of our faith. So he wrote it, he also lived it out to perfection. So if I want to be like him, I need to imitate him so that I can, not that I'll ever be perfect, but we're supposed to aim for that perfection. Sure. And so I think that's what we see in his character. And he wrote it, he perfected it, so... Okay. He's who we, we need to be like. Very good. What else? Any other thoughts? Yes, sir. Because he was a servant. Because he was a servant. Okay. He came to serve and not to be served. Okay. He says, for the Son of Man came to serve and not to be served, which was counterintuitive for most people around him. And we're actually going to dive into that a little bit today. We've talked about the mouth of Christ and Christ's speech. We've talked about um, the... Uh, mind of Christ, and we talked about having the mind of Jesus through the Spirit. Today we're going to talk about the hands of Jesus and Jesus' service. Open up to Luke chapter 4 if you wouldn't mind. If you don't have a Bible, please look on with somebody else with you, or if you want, you can raise your hand and one of our ushers will come give you one. Uh, but one of the things that we're really trying to do and, and be a part of here in the Asheville Church family as well is that every individual can lay their own eyes on the Bible for themselves. So we're going to read in Luke 4, and we are kind of trying a little beta test here in the church, you know, where we're trying to read physical paper Bibles and not necessarily so much on a screen. Uh, if you do have to have a screen for, for whatever reason, please don't feel guilty, but uh, we do uh, invite you to try this little beta test with us where we're flipping pages instead of swiping screens. In Luke chapter 4, you know, Luke uh, opens up his gospel. He opens up the ministry of Jesus in his gospel. In verse 14, he says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit after he had been tempted and tested in the wilderness by Satan. And he says, And the news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. So Jesus has withdrawn in the wilderness. 
He's gained strength from God and the mighty angels. He's resisted Satan, who is tempting him to not embark upon this three-year uh, public ministry to proclaim his father. And he's traveling around and he's teaching people and he's going into the Jewish churches, the synagogues, and people are praising him. So he was kind of a popular guy. And then in verse 16, he says he went to Nazareth, where he was originally from, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. It's interesting. Did Jesus ask for the prophet Isaiah? Was that just the day's reading? Was some angel like connecting the, the guy handing the scroll to Jesus to make sure it was the... It doesn't say, it just says that Isaiah was handed to him and unrolling it, Jesus finds the place where it's written. So this could have been a very, very long scroll. Not likely all of Isaiah in one scroll, but possibly. So he scans through a lot of writing with no chapter numbers, no verse numbers, and he finds the spot that he's looking for. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant, and he sits down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. They were gazing at him. And he began by saying to them, after he rolls up the scroll, after he hands it to the attendant, everyone's watching him, kind of like you are to me right now. He says, today, that just happened. You just heard it fulfilled. Verse 22, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? And then he goes on and starts talking to them about how prophets don't receive honor in their hometown. So Luke opens up the ministry of Jesus, right? Where Jesus starts to pro publicly proclaim who he is and what he's doing and why with this scene where Jesus is in church. And he tells all of his church friends of which he is not the elite leader of, right? He's Joseph's son, a carpenter's son. He's not a rabbi. He's not been trained in the Jewish customs to be a leader in church. And he opens up Isaiah. And many times you'll hear me say Isaiah. Some people make fun of me for that. So I have to catch myself. The English way that we pronounce it is Isaiah. If you were wondering, everyone else on the planet calls it Isaiah. So just that's where it's coming from. Um, <laughs> He opens up Isaiah, and Isaiah was a marquee text for the Jews. Maybe one of the greatest prophetic books that they revered because it talked so much and so plainly about the coming Messiah. And he turns to a very familiar passage in Isaiah 61, and he says, I'm that dude. So let's turn over to Isaiah chapter 61. And let's learn a little bit more and figure out a little bit more about who is Jesus saying that he really is? What did he fulfill 
in their hearing that day. Isaiah 61 in verse 1. Jesus is quoting here in Luke 4. He says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow upon them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair, kind of like Michael just shared about with us. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Isaiah written some many hundreds of years before this scene in Luke 4 that we just read. A prophet of God. A man who's in the very beginning of Isaiah, the first half of the book, scolding the Jews. If you're familiar with Isaiah. He's scolding the Jews. He's calling them to repentance. He's saying you've left God. You've not obeyed him. You've abandoned him and you've gone to these other so-called gods and you've started revering them and worshiping them and setting up idols and becoming like all of these other pagan nations that God wanted you to be separate from. And then there's a transition about halfway through Isaiah's book. And he starts talking about this one that's going to come to Israel, this one that's going to set them free. From their idolatry and their pagan practices. One that's going to be this king. And this prophet. And this reconciler of God's people. And as you work through the book, the, the latter half. You get to this sections here. In chapter 61, he starts painting a picture of what this Messiah king is going to be like. And what's he going to do. And how is it going to affect people. And then Jesus shows up at a synagogue in Luke 4 and says, I'm that Messiah King that Isaiah was talking about. The one who's going to do the things that he mentioned, where people are going to be oaks of righteousness and not these reeds of wickedness. Where people are going to be set free, no longer prisoners, no longer captives. Of course, now in hindsight, we know that he was talking about captivity of sin. Referencing John 8, how can we be set free when we've never been slaves of anyone? I tell you the truth, anyone who has sinned is a slave to sin. I'm sure that many of the Jews reading Isaiah, or Isaiah, many of the Jews listening to Jesus and Luke 4 when he's reading the prophet, they're thinking, sweet, we're no longer going to be controlled by the Romans. We're going to overthrow these guys. War is coming. Does that sound similar to our context? Sweet. We're going to have freedom from economic oppression. And we're going to build walls to do that. Doesn't matter what they cost. Doesn't matter how high they are. Doesn't matter how long they need to be. We're going to have freedom by exclusion. I hope that's not offensive to you. But if it is, Jesus offended some people too when he said, I'm that guy. 
because he wasn't who they were expecting. Peter, even years after this Luke 4 juncture, walking with Jesus for years, seeing him do these miracles, seeing him love people, show compassion on people, eat and drink with people that no one thought he should be eating and drinking with, at the moment's hour when all of it's coming to climax, what does Peter do? He draws a sword. He's still ready for war. We're going to get this freedom. What does that look like for us today? Flip the page, just a couple of pages, to Isaiah chapter 58. We'll continue to see this prophetic vision from Isaiah. Isaiah tells us what the Lord's favor will look like, the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus opens up his ministry in the Gospel of Luke saying, I'm this guy. I'm opening up the year of the Lord's favor right now in your hearing. That's what he says in Luke 4. Nobody probably understood fully what he was really getting at. No one could foresee the end three years later, him hanging on a cross. This is the year of the Lord's favor. This is setting captives free. This is what it means for the oppressed to be liberated. This is what justice looks like. No, we want a sword for justice. The day of the Lord's vengeance doesn't look like a man hanging on a cross. So what does it look like? Isaiah chapter 58, we read in verse 1, Shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion. Aren't you expecting something really happy to be spoken right there? Declare it aloud with a trumpet. God is awesome. No, he says, declare that my people are rebellious. How would you like to have been Isaiah, being given that message by God? I want you to tell everyone they suck, and I'm not pleased with them. Would you run from that? Some prophets did. They got swallowed up by fishes. He says, to the descendants of Jacob, declare their rebellion, their sins, for day after day they seek me out. He's going to outline their sin a little bit here. He's going to outline their rebellion. God is telling Isaiah, this is how they're rebelling against me. Day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for decisions and seem eager for God to come near to them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you've not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife. And in the striking each other with wicked fists, they fast all day to humble themselves before God, to seek God in his decisions, to implore God. And at the end of their fast, they're beating each other. They're fighting, literally fisticuffs. And he says, you cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Well, why not, God? We're humbling ourselves, we're fasting, we're putting on sackcloth, we're foregoing food, showing that we're utterly dependent upon you for everything. And he says, is that the kind of fast 
that I have chosen in verse 5 only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked, to clothe them, to not turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and the malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfying the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs even in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. Luke records Jesus as saying, today you've heard this fulfilled in your presence. And the passage that he's quoting from is on the heels of Isaiah telling God's people what God really actually wants. And it's not actually what they were doing. He says, you guys are doing religious things. You're bowing down like reeds. For a day you're fasting and giving up food. But what's not right? Your relationships with each other. He says you fight with each other. You quarrel with one another. You exploit each other. If somebody's working for you, you're robbing them. You're exploiting their labor by cheapening their wages. Or perhaps, maybe like Pharaoh did with the Israelites in Egypt. I want you to make twice as many bricks and you got to go get your own straw. He was exploiting them. And what happened? God says, I have heard the cries of my people because they were oppressed. God has a heart for those that are oppressed. God has a heart for justice. And justice does not look like to God often what we think justice looks like. What do we think justice looks like? Vengeance. I want you to feel the way that I feel. I want you to hurt the way that I hurt. If I'm hurting, I want you to hurt. God says justice is those that have giving to those that don't. Not 
exploiting them so they can have more and that the oppressed can have less. We're an oppressed people here in America, right? I get all sorts of reactions from that question. Well, it might depend on your level of education, it might depend on the color of your skin, it might depend on what part of the country you were born in, it might depend on how many generations your family goes back to this country. We love to tout ourselves as the leaders of the free world. And yet, are we really freeing the yokes of oppression? This is what God says true fasting is. Are we really feeding the hungry around us? I'm grateful for being able to partner with the Mana Food Bank, being able to partner with other organizations and groups in the community that are trying to live out this concept of true fasting, of true worship of God, of true obedience and being like God, of carrying out God's desires. This is where we want to go as a church. For those of you that weren't here a couple Thursdays ago, we talked about our vision project, where we're going as a church over the next few years and why. I would encourage you to listen to that on the website if you haven't already. One of the things that we are really aiming for, one of the things that we're striving to become, not only as individuals, but as a community, is to really take God's heart of justice, of setting the oppressed free, of feeding the hungry, of caring for other people seriously. And that we have ways in our daily, weekly, monthly lives of rhythm to do that tangibly. All of us have the heart to want to do that, right? None of us are like, no, I want to put my boot on you for my good, right? If you do, then, you know, you probably won't be here very long because you'll learn that's not what we're really trying to be about. All of us have a heart to truly fast, as Isaiah talked about, but a lot of times our intentions and our hearts get severed from actuality, from the realities of the daily lives that we live and the pressures that we have and raising families and working at jobs where maybe we are being oppressed or so on and so forth. And so we want to, as a community, really try to figure out ways, how can we as individuals and as a community take seriously setting up rhythms in our life where we're feeding the hungry, where we're fighting for justice of the oppressed, figuring out who even is that in our community who is that in our workplace? Who is that in our neighborhood? Who is that in my own family, in my own household? So that when we cry out to God, he will say, here I am. And he will not say, I don't know you. You don't share my heart. In James chapter one, let's turn there. You know, Jesus said something so, I'm sure, shocking there in Luke 4 by saying, Today you have heard this fulfillment. He was pronouncing that he was the king, the Messiah, the servant of God that Isaiah was talking about. He was the one that was going to truly free the oppressed, 
truly feed the hungry. And you see it from that moment on all the way through the rest of the Gospels. And then you see him give that charge to his disciples. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to obey everything I have taught you. Many times I'm concerned that our understanding of what it means to make disciples boils down to some doctrinal point of conversion. When Jesus says making disciples is making people who are in love with and following the heart of God, which includes being what being about what Jesus was about, which was freeing the oppressed, feeding the hungry, creating oaks of righteousness, even in sun-scorched lands. James, Jesus' very own brother, continues this idea. He continues this concept of what does it look like to truly follow God? And it's so much more than just going to church or having an outward veneer of morality. So much more than singing songs and feeling emotions and raising our hands and having tears come down our cheeks. It actually has a lot to do with how we treat other people. <coughs> James 1, in verse 26. Those who consider themselves religious, which I would assume are probably most of us here today, and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Dang. I don't know about y'all, but that's tough reading right there. He says, if you consider yourself religious and don't keep a tight rein on your tongue, your religion is worthless. We talked about Christ's speech last week. We talked about how in Ephesians 4.29 it says that there should be no unwholesome talk that comes out of our mouths, but only that which is useful for building others up. James goes on later to talk about how the tongue is this violent thing. It's like a spark that can set a forest ablaze. It's like a little rudder of a ship. It can determine the whole outcome of a man's life. Our speech is so important to God. And yet, we live in a land where we value freedom of speech. And what does that freedom of speech mean? That I can say whatever I want, however I want, to whomever I want, whenever I want. And God says, nope. True fasting. The prophet Isaiah, speaking to the Jews who have abandoned God, I think still has a message for us today in the 21st century of America. <coughs> The Founding Fathers and our principles of freedom are not the freedom that God gives us. It's not freedom of speech. It's the freedom to have reign over our speech. It's the freedom to live self-controlled lives. To not live out of control, doing whatever we want and calling that freedom. It only leads to more bondage. It only leads to more enslavement. This is the counterintuitive message of the gospel. And Jesus' brother got it. And he says, you know what kind of religion God really accepts? What kind of religion God's really looking for? 
He says, it's to take care of those in need. To take care of those, especially in his day and age, that would have no way to take care of themselves. Who are those people in our culture? Are they orphans and widows? Perhaps. So proud of how this church has rallied behind some of our recently widowed members. And I think that that's exemplary. And I think we're taking serious having a religion that God accepts. I'm so proud of this church for the way that you guys have rallied around Lindley and her girls. Who else are the orphans and the widows of our culture? Those that cannot do for themselves. Those that are under a weight of a system, intended or unintended, and are being oppressed by that system. Should I go there? Do you want me to name them for you? Or is it too touchy? Do Black Lives Matter? Do Hispanic lives matter? Do immigrant lives matter? And this isn't about a political movement. This is about the heart of God. That we are in allegiance to Jesus and his country. And we are heavenly bound. We are not citizens of America. I rejoice, Father, that I can say this in America and not be persecuted. But even if I were persecuted, it would still be true. And I would have to suffer the consequences for the truth. And one day, perhaps, there will be consequences right here in America for speaking what's actually true according to God. Religion that God accepts is oftentimes not what we think of religion being. We think, at least for me, that this is religion. And God says, this actually could be the very opposite of religion. He said, this could actually be what I abhor, what I hate, because we're not actually treating one another with the heart that God desires. I'm grateful that we have different looking faces and different aged faces in here. I think that represents the spirit and heart of God. But we can all come into a gathering like this and we can look really diverse and still be just as segregated as ever in heart. And God, through Jesus, that Messiah King that Isaiah said would come, is challenging us to follow him, to follow his Father's heart, to look after the poor, to look after the oppressed, to lay aside our rights and even our privilege for the sake of other people. And in God's kingdom, we are greatly privileged because our privilege has nothing to do with this material world. Our privilege is just like Michael talked about earlier for the communion, that we have value and inherent worth before God, our creator, that has nothing to do with what this world tries to put labels of worth on us for. What kind of job you have, how much money you have, how much education you have, what does your speech sound like, etc., etc. God says, I love you. You're valuable just as much as anyone else just because I made you. 
Even if you have physical or mental handicaps and disabilities, even if you struggle with mental illness, even if you can't provide for yourself, God says, I love you equally and you are just as valuable to me. And he asks us to have the same heart and to have the same relationship with each other that he has with each of us. So as we get ready to move forward as a church, going towards this vision project, I want to start laying the groundwork now that guys, we've got to have a gospel deep in our hearts that includes the justice and the service and the laying down of one's life for others in the center as well as we have sitting down and opening up the Bible with people. Otherwise, we can be in jeopardy of what Jesus told the Pharisees, that we travel far and wide to make a single convert. And when we do, we make them twice the son of hell that we are because we don't share in God's heart. Let's pray together as we close out. Father, wow, I mean, wow. We stand in front of Jesus and we hear him speak and we are amazed just like they were when they were sitting in front of him. Thank you for your word, God. Thank you that you have preserved your words and your message for us to teach us and instruct us for all generations. God, help us to not have religion that is worthless. All of us here. We love you. We want to love you more. We want to have deeper faith in your love for us. Even in those times where we don't feel that you love us or we feel that we are unlovable. Help us to have deep faith, God. And from that place of faith, help us to, to reach out, to step towards loving others. Especially those that the world say are unlovable. Especially those that the world says have nothing to offer. Those are the ones, Father, that you want us to care for and look after. Help us to have a heart like yours, God. Help us to have eyes of compassion like Jesus. Help us to have hands like Jesus who touched the lepers, who forgave the adulterous woman, who stretched out, nailed upon a beam, said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. <coughs> Who set us prisoners free. We love you, God, and we thank you for Christ. It's in his mighty name we pray.